It's May 26th, 2019, and this is episode 398 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, I'm here with Stephanie Murphy. Hi. And special guest, Kirk Phillips, author of The Ultimate Bitcoin Business Guide and our favorite CPA in the space. Hello. Thanks to Stephanie and Kirk and to you, the listeners, for joining us on today's episode. So today we're going to be talking about taxes, specifically taxes in the U.S., since it's the one that we're all stuck with on this show. (laughs) Since we got started back in 2013, following the law on taxes has not always been easy or even really clear. Let's just get started with something simple. Why do cryptocurrency and the U.S. tax system have such a hard time meshing in the first place? I think in theory, calculating taxes is is simple, but then you have what actually happens in practice. So the need to have specialized software to make those calculations on your behalf. You also have what I call, a it's kind of like a, a simultaneous parallel set of transactions that happen. People know that we have what I also call the coffee problem, which is every time you spend uh, Bitcoin or any other crypto on anything, you have to calculate a gain or loss on that transaction, which is either depreciation of that asset relative to what you bought it for. Then you also have to record the, let's say, the operating expense, if you will. So if you happen to be buying, you know, office supplies with Bitcoin, and that will, you know, you spent let's say $150 at Staples, uh, not that they accept Bitcoin, but if you did that, you'd have to record the $150 for the expense, and then you'd have to record the gain or loss. So there's two parallel, simultaneous transactions that have to be calculated, which is really quite unique for any type of transaction. That I think that's one of the really unique aspects of cryptocurrency. Basically, if you buy something with Bitcoin, you're kind of doing two transactions. One is selling the Bitcoin and exchanging it into dollars. And then you're using the dollars to buy like a piece of business equipment that maybe may have some tax implication to it as well, like depreciation. Is that right? Yes, it's right. Like, yeah, let's just, if you want to say business equipment or you want to talk, just to use my office supplies example. So if you went to buy $150 worth of office supplies from Staples with USD, you'd simply record on the, again, I'm t- thinking about this more from a business angle, the example. So you would record you know, cash out and then you would record office expense. That's it. You're done. However, if you did it with Bitcoin or another crypto, you would do the same thing there because you have to make the translation from whatever the crypto is to the USD equivalent. You would record the same thing. But at the same time, you then have to record a parallel, another transaction, which is a gain or loss related to that office expense. Yeah, unless you immediately exchange the Bitcoin into dollars right after you get it, right? Which sometimes can fluctuate within even the same day or the same hour, right? You might have a gain or loss. If you're holding on to any cryptocurrency, the value in US dollars could be different than when you first obtained that Bitcoin, right? And so then you have a gain or loss, which is like another tax event that you have to deal with. And this is like a real headache because anytime you buy anything, you would technically be required to kind of keep a record of this. And what if it's just like something really small, like a cup of coffee, which is the example you used, then you have this massive amount of paperwork at the end of the year for every cup of coffee that you bought and the gains or losses on it. Now, do most people do that? No, I don't think so. But I mean, there's at least like wallet software that's attempting to help people keep up with this and keeping records of it. But it's still kind of just a mess and it discourages people from actually using cryptocurrency to buy anything, especially if it's a business expense, because 
it creates a lot of paperwork. That's a good point. One thing I'd like to point out that might help with like, where does the confusion come from? So the one thing that I can say that I actually can appreciate the uh, banking and fiat world for now in retrospect is the fact that, you know, when you go into create a bank account, you know, you go see customer service and they say, hi, how are you going to help you today? What are you here for? Oh, I want to open a bank account. And they say, okay, well, is that business or personal? And you say business and they say, okay, is that checking your savings? And you say checking and then they set you all up and it's very black and white when you leave and you know what your account number is and it's associated with an EIN of the business and the name and the address and so on. And okay, you need to make your initial deposit and then you get statements. So anything in that world, whether it's actually banking or credit cards and mortgage statements or anything, you know, you have typically a monthly statement, which is beginning balance plus deposits uh, minus withdrawals equals ending balance. And that's the same thing over and over again, inventory, everything's done that way. So when you have a statement, that's the reference point, the stake in the sand, as I like to call it, that gives you the ability to then reconcile. That's what happened over there. And then I have attempting to capture what happened over here on my side, you know, recording and accounting and bookkeeping wise. And then that's the method that helps you make sure everything is complete and accurate. But see, that's the missing if there's right now in the space. You don't get statements. It's all it's a self-serve. It's the monetary sovereignty approach. It's a self-serve approach. So even the knowing exactly what you have, a business checking account and so forth at X bank with X EIN. When we go create a wallet, you know, a lot of times it's like, okay, there's no forethought to it. I mean, you do have an, an address to it, label a wallet and things like that, but it's it's a little more it's a little murky. It's more gray. It's not as clear cut. So if you don't really have a strategy from the beginning, the way that you lay out the wallets and what you call them and have them related to the account and the general ledger and things like that, it just becomes sloppy. Yeah, I mean, it should be good practice. You know, if you have a business and you're kind of commingling your personal and business transactions, it can get a little bit confusing when it comes to your accounting, not even just taxes, but just accounting for your business, balancing your books. How do you keep track of which transactions were personal and which were business? You know, and it's the same thing with uh, Bitcoin wallets and other cryptocurrencies. And, you know, keeping track of all that can be difficult if you don't kind of start out with a plan. I'm sure, Kirk, that you've had to untangle a lot of messiness <laughs> over the yeah, years. You actually, you actually nailed it. Commingling is one of already the largest headaches in the, I guess, in the accounting environment. That's just just starting with the fiat world. If there's commingling that takes place on, with, you know, within bank accounts or credit cards, that's already a nightmare enough. However, even though it's a nightmare, it can be dealt with quite objectively, let's say. But when you have commingling in crypto, oh man, that's just four or five, 10 times more complicated. So, and right. this is, I mean, commingling is really a typical event. It's just what happens. I mean, in any world, fiat, crypto, anything, commingling just happens. It's like you have an account, you know, you want to go start a business It starts to formulate and crystallize over the course of time. And, you know, you may be using personal expenses to fund on behalf of the entity. The entity might not even be formalized yet. And then you finally formalize it and then you get the entity bank account. And then it starts to shift into you know, being more formal that way. And then the commingling stops and stuff like that. But I mean, I've seen in crypto where somebody had a wallet that was personal, all of a sudden the same phenomenon happens. It morphs into business. Now it's all commingled. Now it's a complete nightmare. And there's no memos and no information for months or whatever to document where (laughs) what the transactions were for. So this whole thing can quickly get unwieldy for sure. 
Kirk, you brought up the example of spending cryptocurrency for a business expense. But Adam, you were starting to get into the example of what if you're earning cryptocurrency as part of your wages or salary? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. If we want people to live in this world, it has to be somewhat easy for them to live in this world in a way that's legally compliant with the jurisdiction in which they reside. It's always been really surprising to me how difficult it's been to actually do taxes when you start to get into this world, unless you take really specific precautions up front. You know, Kirk, you mentioned memos uh, and that sometimes there aren't memos. Well, that's one thing that I've learned over the last number of years is that memos are almost always local to the actual wallet instance that you have set up on your computer at the time. And for the most part, if you need to reload the wallet somewhere else from you know the recovery phrase, those memos don't go with it. And so you can do a really good job, but then have your computer crash or something like that. And if you didn't also back up the memos, which sometimes you can, sometimes you can't, then that right there, there goes your, all your context out the window. Yeah, that's a good point. And then to add on to that is the fact that what I found is it seems like a majority of platforms, wallets, if you will, don't have a memo field. So, which blows me away. It seems like the thing that you would have as technology is going to progress and get better, that you would certainly, by default, have a memo field across the board everywhere. And it seems to me it's almost a majority of the time that there's not memos available. (laughs) Well, that's unfortunate. Kirk, are there other assets besides cryptocurrency that have this problem? Or is this something that's kind of unique to crypto because it's got the both highly decentralized and also it is supposed to be used like money as the kind of attributes. Yes, I, I think it's unique because it's a shape-shifting type of asset, that it can be multiple things in multiple contexts at the same time. You know, it could be security, commodity, property. More than one. Money, you know, medium of exchange, store of value, unit of account. It can be all these things over again in different forms, in different contexts. So yeah, I think it's unique in that way. I think an analogy to help understand that would be like, what's the most similar thing would be securities, of course, are accounted for much like when I say securities, like, you know, stocks, bonds and so forth are accounted for much like uh, crypto is, uh, you know, as a property. It's, you know, you still have that kind of gain and loss calculation, bought it for X, it either went up or down. When you sell it, you have either a gain or a loss. However, with securities, even though you could have folks that do trading and so forth, you know, like you could have your professional traders and stuff like that, but just put that aside for a minute. What would be the average number of security sales that might end up in a portfolio for the average person? I think it's going to happen much less frequently than it would for crypto because you're using crypto more as a, there's a medium of exchange use case, which means that that would equate to a higher frequency of usage. So think about if you had less a security account, like whatever it is, TD Ameritrade or whatever, and you can, I mean, some of these accounts, you can actually have a money market account with it and a debit card, but like, and even in some cases in crypto, right, you can have like a debit card and actually spend through the Visa network and spend the Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. But think if you had like a TD Ameritrade where it was, you know, you had a debit card and you could actually spend your securities. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you got stocks in Apple or Coca-Cola or whatever like that. Yeah. And they're sitting there, these assets, but you can just go, you know, you now have the ability to go buy coffee or office supplies or equipment or whatever it is using the debit card. And it just, mm-hmm you know, sells the security as you do it. That would be the equivalent of what is actually happening here in Bitcoin and crypto. Interesting. And do those don't exist right now? I'm not aware of it uh, working like that. 
So Kirk, you know, the big problem there, it seems like, is that this is something that needs to be done manually for the most part. And it's something that if you don't start doing it until kind of the end of the process, that can be a lot harder than if you have these systems in place at the beginning. What do you think of the current options that are out there, just broadly speaking? Like, are there good solutions at this point and where can we find them? Yes, I think there are good solutions that are out there. In the beginning days, 2014 or so, we had about, you know, there was three platforms that came out of the gate. One of those is shutting down now. LibreTax is shutting down. However, let's make it clear that they've pivoted to LibreOffice, which is an institutional solution, but didn't exist before for any of the major players that we know of in the space. So they've solved that. But the original product that was just for the, let's say, the average user, that's being shut down. Now, since then, we've had another six to eight to 10 platforms that have emerged, you know, that have improved their features and things like that. So we do have that stuff that's coming on the scene. It's helping folks out that gives them more choice to be able to pick a platform. You know, then I also look at it like there's two kind of parallel use cases. You have like the investor slash portfolio play people, toddlers, mm-hmm. if you will, but you got the portfolio play versus using crypto as in, I'll go back to my business operations example, like you're actually using it as medium of exchange. And sometimes you have some of these platforms like really work really great with the portfolio play aspect because it's just about the trading and you have the fancy pie graphs and the charts and stuff like that. But they may not handle the spending of crypto like for purposes of you know accounting for it on the business side. So let's go easiest to most difficult here. From a compliance standpoint and tax reporting standpoint, what kind of burden is on a person who simply buys cryptocurrency and never sells it? <laughs> the true hodler. Right. That's a good, yeah. Let's take a trip down the spectrum. Yes, that's the best way to go because you actually really have no tax compliance and you don't have any taxable event, at least in that current period. So you have put in, you know, you've set in stone now what your cost basis is. So whatever you bought it for, for whatever particular asset on whatever, whatever date, you know, that's in stone for that, for a possible future sale. But as far as any tax compliance, yeah, if you just buy and hold, that's easy peasy. So activity is the thing really that makes this complicated. The more activity that you have sort of within your spectrum of Bitcoin or cryptocurrency activity, the more moving parts you have to correlate and make sure kind of everything is working together. So is the next most complicated one traders or is it businesses? I would say, yeah, moving down the spectrum, it would be traders. So a trader working on multiple exchanges, what they have to do is they have to grab kind of their whole trading record from all of those different exchanges And then that's typically where you would use a piece of software to consolidate those records and figure out your cost basis is for each one. But that information probably isn't even really enough, right? Because at some point you have to have put money into the system and that truly would represent your cost basis more so than what your current holdings are, right? Right. Well, actually, after uh, your example number one for simplicity, example number two for the next derivative of simplicity would actually be the person that has a Coinbase account. And that's the only thing they have is Coinbase. Mm. So they set that up. In that case, as we know, you can buy Bitcoin attached to a bank account with a debit card. Mm. So you, that's the only thing you have. You buy Bitcoin in there and whatever other assets they, you can buy now on Coinbase. And then you sell it through there. That's it. It comes in, it goes out through one source. That, that's the next level of simplicity. Because then you can link that up. In many cases, almost every platform has some way to link up with an API to Coinbase. And the other top, you know, say 10 exchanges. So if that's all you have, that's pretty easy peasy too. It's just as soon as you go down the road of 
like I say, I came up with this cryptocurrency tax complexity equation, which is the more transactions you have, the more exchanges you have, the more wallets you have, the more commingling you have, you know, you multiply all that together, that equals the complexity of your cryptocurrency transactional landscape. So you've got some exponential complexity there. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Do you actually give people a complexity score or is it just kind of a a thought exercise? Well, now that you mention it, I think we will be (laughs) giving a complexity score. I I did. I I, I made a blog. I'll put that equation. Right. Okay. So back to the example. So we were on the next notch up from the person who just buys and holds. You would want to use one that is simple and that has good tax compliance kind of built into it because Coinbase and others generate really reports. That single source seems like it's the key and also good compliance in a relatively simple type of platform. You know, no derivatives or anything crazy like that. So what about the person who's only dealing with Bitcoin via Coinbase versus the person who's dealing with multiple cryptocurrencies? Is that another step up? That's another factor in that. So yes, if it's only Bitcoin, obviously that makes it a lot more simple that way. But actually, like I said, if you only had Coinbase, everything that happened was inside of your Coinbase account, regardless of if you have Bitcoin or any of the whatever 10 assets or so they have right now, if you, it really still wouldn't matter in that particular case, whether you had Bitcoin or you had some of all 10, the fact that it all happened within that account, you could say that that falls in the same range of complexity right there. So if you want to know like, now what's the third level? The third level will be now you have Coinbase. Now let's add in a wallet. You could say another second exchange, but let's just use another, a wallet, for example. So whatever that is, if you got one using Trezor, and then you have some transactions that, you know, as soon as you have that, you're introducing transfers, meaning sending, you know, Bitcoin from the Trezor to the Coinbase, let's say, to sell Bitcoin or whatever. Maybe now you've also started to get paid in Bitcoin. So when you get paid, it goes directly into your cold storage rather than going into Coinbase. So now you've got transfers between the two accounts. So it's great. If you're using the exchanges that are the most popular ones, and most of these tax software has APIs for you know, most popular uh, exchanges, that's great. It brings in the trades automatically and that works well. But what doesn't it do? Well, what it doesn't do is it doesn't bring in, typically does not bring in deposits and withdrawals. So you still have to go grab those from the exchange and download those. And even when you download, which is good practices, by the way, to make sure that you archive all transactions you can from any of these places as a raw file to have as a backup. Don't rely on the fact that it's now in the software. Like that's your record. You should always have a backup. But with that said, when you typically go to get your different files from the exchanges, they come trading is one, withdrawals is one, deposits is another. The trading aspect is usually the only one that you link up automatically. What can happen is if you grab that, if you're missing the deposits and withdrawals, be missing a piece of the equation, you could calculate a negative balance. In a perfect world, you should capture every transaction, but sometimes that's not practical. And it doesn't mean the calculation is wrong if you don't have them all either, if you're missing transfers, but you need transfers for troubleshooting purposes. Hope all that makes sense. So the issue here is that transfers aren't taxable because they're just me moving it from one of my pockets to another one of my pockets, but trades are. But when you're looking at this from the perspective of just all the transfers that have been made, it's kind of hard to tell what's going where, what's going you know, internally versus what's going to an exchange that then forms the basis of a deposit or something like that, right? Correct. Exactly. So transfers are non-taxable. They may be the most important set of transactions you need to capture because transactions should match up. They come in pairs. Each one is a mirror image of itself. So when you match those up, 
you can check those off as a transfer and that helps with troubleshooting. You know, you certainly know it's not income or not some other type of, uh, you know, event. So Kirk, are there ways to tag transactions? Because sometimes with like traditional bank accounts, you can tag transactions as like, this is a transfer, this is income, this is not whatever. What are the tools to do that with crypto wallets? Well, the wallet may give you the ability through a memo or it may have the ability to tag. It's really, you've got that, but then it's really when it comes into the tax software, can you then, does whatever happened at the source get transferred into the tax software and or in the tax software, do you have the ability to tag it there? So you still have some limitations in some of the features that allow you to get where you want to go with it. Right. Yeah. I'm just wondering if you have any specific recommendations for tools for people to do this. Like, what would you recommend to your client? If, Like, if you had this type of client, what would you recommend to them? Are you talking about specific tax software solutions? Yeah, right. Like, walk us through the process that like, if someone says, okay, here's my situation. I have a Trezor where I keep some coins and then I have an exchange where I'm selling them off and then it goes to Coinbase and how do I make my next year's taxes easier? <laughs> How do I keep track of all this? What would you tell that person? Well, the first thing is really to take an inventory. I mean, it seems like a logical thing, but it's really take an inventory of everything that you've ever done. That's really the best place to start. You just got to, and it can literally take some time because if you've been around the space for a while, which I know you guys have, then you could have all kinds of different wallets and exchanges, some of them that don't exist anymore. <laughs> So you need to make an inventory of all of the wallets and exchanges and other places that you may have used your Bitcoin and crypto. And then once you do that, then you need to go to, you know, you actually really have to make your own tracker, essentially. You have to make your own tracker like in Excel. That's kind of a missing with the softwares is a way to track what's actually happening. So you're basically on recommending like a spreadsheet. (laughs) You, You do, yeah. There should be, there should be some other type of interface that helps to track the process of getting it where it is and getting it, you know, it's kind of like the migration or onboarding process. You have to be able to track that. And again, the more of these wallets and, you know, exchanges that you've used, it can be complicated and you can really need to track it. Like with an exchange, you may need to download three different types of files. Again, trading, withdrawals, and deposits can be three different downloads. And that's just from one platform. So you need to track, okay, you know, here's the inventory. Here are the different file types, you know, has it been downloaded yet? You know, whether you're color coding or whatever, have you archived it yet? Has it been imported yet? You kind of have to track each step along the way. Because what happens is, you know, like anything that you do, any type of work it is that you do, no matter what it is, you know, today you're working on it, it's fresh. We all think it's going to be there. Well, then you put it down. Then every day that passes by, it starts to fade away a little bit. So if you come back to the stuff a week or two later, all of a sudden, you know, you didn't track it. Then you got to spin wheels to try to figure out where you left off again. And you got to go dig and say, okay, yeah, look, you know, try to look back in the software and figure, oh, that's right, I already imported that. Like, I don't need that file. Let me look, what files did I archive? It's really tracking it as you go from where you are to getting into the software when you're doing this from the very start. And then, of course, the next thing is, has anybody used any software at all yet? Have you tried to put anything into place yet? The question may be yes or it may be no. Right. Especially if you're talking about a business who's had multiple different (laughs) people managing this. So, okay, I want to get into another question or situation, which is the idea of exchanging one cryptocurrency to another cryptocurrency. 
Now, this used to be considered like a like-kind exchange, or most people thought that that was what it was, where this was not a taxable event. But now that was clarified recently. So for 2018, it was considered a taxable event. Is that right, Kirk? That's correct. Yes. Okay. So basically, that means when you exchange one cryptocurrency to another, it's as though you're selling it and you're supposed to pay, track the gains or losses on that and then pay taxes on that, even if you're not ending up with US dollars in your hand. That's correct. Any buyers, well, yes, any buyer sell of crypto. So, yeah, crypto to crypto or crypto sold to USD in any of those cases where there's a sale, you would trigger a taxable mm-hmm. event. So, yes, like kind is now only available for real estate transactions in 2018 and forward. But as far as that being something that's available, that was probably one of the top two hottest topics of 2017 and 2018 was like-kind exchanges and forks. I would say those are the top two. Oh, okay. So, well, let's talk about both of those. Tell us about that. Well, just to go back to the like-kind, as I've mentioned that I was fortunate enough to be invited to and work on the AICPA's Virtual Currency Task Force, where we put together a recommendation white paper for the IRS, which was the second time they had done this. And this was put out on May the 30th, 2018. The idea there was to, hey, let's do the work for them and uh, create, instead of asking like, you know, what do you recommend on this topic or this type of transaction? We put the work together and actually said, look, here's the background summary of what's happening here with a particular transaction or event, cryptocurrency event, here's what we recommend and so on and so forth. So it was like, here, here's, here's what we say, you know, you can just put a stamp of approval on it or not. Of course, we haven't heard anything on that. But the reason I'm bringing that up is because that's where I discovered a lot of the conversation around what I'm saying is that those are the two hottest topics. And so I saw where you had some of the smartest people who are trying to sort this out and bring clarity to it. And I've seen where there was both sides of the coin. We spent weeks going around in circles trying to come up with what's the stance. What are the two sides of the coin, as, as you're saying? What's the split? Oh, well, I mean, basically you have a camp that says that 1031, there would be some risk that if you did it, that it could be denied if you did that for cryptocurrency transactions. And there's another camp that thought that you could. And the 1031 is, is a like-kind exchange. So for example, a crypto Correct. exchange. Right, okay. Yeah, so... Again, if I think there was some people that attempted to get, you know, attorney letters, if you will, like legal opinions that happens, Mm -hmm. you know, in other areas, you get a legal opinion on a complicated matter. I know that some people got those on 1031s and it seems simple on the surface. It's extremely complicated when you drill down to it. It's quite amazing when you see all the principles that are involved and you have to like lift up the hood and see what all the moving parts are. Basically, this was unclear whether you could really do this before 2018, but now it's in 2018, it was like, you can't do this with cryptocurrency. Yeah, at least we have clarity now. We have right. clarity okay. prospectively, but, you know, retrospectively, of course, we're, we're past all that now in some cases. You know, some people are still working on prior years. Right, exactly. Okay, and so what about Forks? Yeah, so Forks was the other, the other hottest one. I guess the the two simple ways to look at it was, is that ordinary income? Right. So is it like you just got money dropped in your wallet? Yeah, like ordinary (laughs) income would be like earned income. In other words, if it's not some other type of income, it usually would be ordinary income. So the reason we talk about capital gains is because that has special tax rates and tax schedule that's applied to it. 
And there's other income categories that may have special rules that are attached to it. So it's like, what type of income, what kind of income is it? So ordinary income is typically the income that has the highest rates attached to it. You know, like earned income, sweat of the brow income, you know, W-2 income. That's what that is. Mm -hmm. So is it, is it ordinary income when you got it or is it a capital asset with a zero basis? So just take Ethereum Classic or Bitcoin Cash. So does that mean you had a zero basis in Bitcoin Cash and then when you later go to sell it, your gains 100% and you have a capital gain? Or is it ordinary income? But see, my argument was always, well, it's at the point in time of receipt that the transaction happened. And then you get into a question of... How much was it worth when you received it, yeah. right? <laughs> it, technically, it has no value because it wasn't trading at anything. We didn't know the exchange. That's exactly correct. Yeah, the, that, that genesis moment when that happened, there was no market discovery that had taken place. The market discovery might happen quickly. But like if you examine the Ethereum Classic case, market discovery didn't happen until about three or four days later. So you actually, if you want to say it was ordinary income, and I'd say, okay, well, it was ordinary income for zero, which in that case makes it you have a basis of zero, which puts it exactly in the exact same camp as if it was a capital asset with a zero basis. It, it defaults to the exact same scenario. So, mm-hmm. and of course, I see it more as like a property division. I use the conjoined twins analogy. I think it's like more like conjoined twins. Oh, that's great. Right? Yes. So it's one thing, and then you have to like separated. Now, it's not quite a perfect analogy because it started, it started off as Bitcoin and then it was like conjoined twins and then you like separate them, right, through surgery. So it's not like the perfect analogy. But I see it more like that from a technical perspective than it's this separate thing because you have to do something to it. It didn't just automatically land in your wallet like an airdrop did. You have to do stuff to it. And then until you do something to it, you know, using the surgery analogy, it's still there together, conjoined. You may never do anything to it. There may be a risk with technology. That's the other point too. You actually, you may not be able to deal with it for quite some time because you, know, you may have to wait for a lot of these wallets and things or a splitter tool or something to happen before you start you know, moving the assets around and try to split it up. So you've got these technology constraints and wild cars that are happening for you to deal with it. So like, you know, the way that the taxing scheme is applied to it needs to be consistent with these uh, kind of technological constraints. So uh, yesterday, I actually got a question from listener Blake, who is himself a CPA. He also was asking about airdrops. Uh, His note says, airdrops are a big unknown. What date should I recognize them as acquired? The date of the fork versus when I split them into a wallet that can handle the new coin? If the former, what is my obligation as a taxpayer to educate myself about and pay gains on the various airdrops that seem to be happening all the time? Is there a taxable gain in the amount of the market value on the date of the split or just when I go to sell? So based on our conversation so far, it sounds like... Don't need to worry about it, Blake, (laughs) unless you're going to sell it later. Yeah, right. Exactly. So effectively a cost basis of zero because at the time that it is actually split, there is no effective market price. The other thing that he asks about is should these be treated like stocks? Like when a stock splits, effectively what you do is you take the cost basis for the, the single share... And whatever the split is, you divide that cost basis between the subsequent shares that result from it. So that's not really analogous to this at all. No, I don't, I don't think a stock split applies at all. A stock split is a zero-sum game. You simply have more shares and less basis. That's not the way this works. Well, it's not the way that crypto really behaves either. If you think about it, you know, when Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash split, you didn't really see you know, like half of the value go to one and half of the value go to the other. They're not equivalent instruments in the same way that they would be in a stock split. That's right. Yeah, they're really two different things. See, the stock is the same. That's one thing that happens there. It's the same stock. This is not the same. 
that's the whole purpose of the splits because you had some community and or the you know miners developers whatever wanted to, to go in a different direction and that's why it went that way so yeah you do see market fluctuation in the original coin like for bitcoin in that case but then it's almost like there was this pent-up value that got released when the fork happened and all of a sudden there's this instantaneous value that fills up with the new token but see airdrops are specifically different than forks because an airdrop is where you just didn't even do anything at all. It was an ancillary to a wallet or a coin that you already had. Like if you have an Ethereum wallet and there's some snapshot on the Ethereum chain, then they'll drop in, you know, at some ratio like that. So it's a little bit of a different scenario, but you do have some of the same risks and things in there. You know, see, the other thing is with airdrops, you know, if you look at the wiki on Bitcoin, it's like, holy cow, look, there's like, you know, I don't know what the list is now, 20 or 30 forks. Yeah, it's a laundry list. But with both forks and airdrops, what can happen is there's so many of these things happening. Of course, most of them don't have value now or don't really have future value. But the issue is that you don't know about it. So you might have stuff that gets airdropped and you don't even know about it. So if you had a tax requirement for you to, you know, if the requirement is for you to be in compliance and and, uh, report income, the brain teaser is reporting income on something you're not even aware about. And again, what if you were forced to report income on something that was, like I said, with the fork, you've got these technological challenges that you have to overcome. I know that some people are opting not to go split their Bitcoin for some of these forks to get the other coin. So, you know, you could have a situation where if the rules were very like, I don't know, black and white, that's okay, if this happens, you got to figure out what the value is and report it as income. But yet technically you opt for not doing it because the risk is you think your existing asset it would be put at risk by having to go through whatever roller coaster ride and song and dance to try to split the coins up so you don't do it. But then you got to report income for something you don't have, you see? It can get really murky quickly. And this is all the kind of stuff we talked about with this. So if you're talking about what date, then it might be like, what date do I pick for when I create the beginning point in time, at least for holding period? There's two things is holding period and basis. Basis is how much. Holding period is when does the clock start? So if you're talking about holding period, then it comes down to when did you have control might be make sense for holding period. Like I know that it was like my conjoined twin, let's say in the case of a fork showed up on X date, but the surgery didn't happen until, you know, three months later when I split them up or I got control of that other coin and now it's segregated into its own wallet or what have you. So that could be like, when do you actually have technical control of it to be consistent with how you would have tax treatment? So given the uncertainty kind of around all of this, there really has been very little in terms of specific guidance. And the work that you're talking about is really trying to figure out how should this work, right? Not necessarily how does it work, but both how does it work and how should it work so that you can issue guidance, you know, and try to get these things moving in the right direction. What about for people who like in 2016 or 2017 filed taxes, but didn't take the like-kind exemption, which it seems like now might have actually been available through, you know, 2018. Is there an ability to refile or to kind of go back and say, hey, the rules are unclear at this point. So here's my real tax thing. Give me a bunch of my money back. (laughs) Well, I mean, in any situation, you always have the ability to amend the tax return through usually about uh, three years back in time. So you have the ability to do that. But like I said, when it comes to the like kind, there is risk there. I mean, that's something where I'd say that that would be a thing where it would likely be a good practice to get a legal opinion. Like I said, it could be. Well, given that that's already passed and I'm talking about someone who would have already paid this, I mean, what's the worst that they can do? Say no? 
is you're talking about go back in time and amend the return so that you are bringing in like kind treatment into the situation? Indeed. So like, for example, I have an associate who I know spent a lot of money because they didn't take the like kind exemption. And because at the time they wanted to be, you know, risk averse, but now are looking at it and saying, okay, well, that's actually several hundred thousand dollars that I wound up paying as a result of not taking this exemption. For that person, it seems like if they could get the money back, it would probably be worth it. But that's the question is like, given the uncertainty surrounding this, what does a process like that look like? Is this just normal, just like you would for any other tax issue? Or is you know crypto and the uncertainty surrounding it making that easier or more difficult? Well, like I said, you could always go back and amend that. I think you'd have a situation where... If whatever risk would normally be there, if that could be, you know, let's say, um, you know, that that treatment was um, discounted, they said, you know, if there was an audit or however that was discovered, could be one thing. But I think the the thing is, you got to realize when you file an amended return, I think you're bringing more attention to it because number one, in most cases, an amended return is a paper return. So you're not filing it electronically. So I've seen somebody where they had they actually had to do an amended return and the attachment was like, you know, a ream of paper. So mm-hmm. it was like, you're going to have to send that in a box you know, rather than mm-hmm. an envelope. So you have to send in a paper return. And like I said, I think that can bring more attention to it. You also reset the clock. You know, if you got three years on the statute of limitations to be in the clear on a tax return and you're two and a half years down the road and you go file an amended return, you've now reset the clock for a three-year stopwatch. For them to effectively find something problematic in your return and come after you for it. That's what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, it might open up a can of worms and go beyond the fact that there's like kind. It might, then all of a sudden, it could potentially scope could open up to other issues there. And the fact that you're filing an amended return and there's cryptocurrency involved. See, when you do that, there's a big box on the front, whether it's a state return or a federal return. And it says, what's the explanation for filing this amended return? So it's not like you just file it, you have to explain all the different things that were changed on that return and, you know, the major, I mean, it could be more than one thing actually, but nonetheless, you have to uh, explain what the premise is for you filing that amended return. So possible, but not easy. And you wind up attracting a lot of attention to yourself and resetting the clock in terms of when it actually gets finalized and you don't have further liability for it in case something was wrong in it. Right. Okay. (laughs) Right. And how long would they, if you were trying to get some money back, like how long would they have to give you the money back? I don't know technically what the rule is on when the money gets issued or if it can be held or not. And the other thing too with amended return is it takes a long time to process it. I mean, probably part of that's the fact that you submit it in paper, but it takes a long time to process. Like when e-file return may be processed within days or something like that, hours, but there's something that goes on. It could be weeks. It could be months before it actually gets processed. So it would have to be processed. And when that's done, the, you know, it would be an adjustment one way or the other. If they agreed with it and there was a refund, then the refund should be issued. When that would happen would be more related to the amount of time it actually takes to process the return, which could be a very long time for an amended return. Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here again with Paul from Edge for another quick sponsored minute. So Paul, I used to think of Edge as a wallet, but it seems like there's a lot more going on here. You're right, Adam. So Edge is a wallet built on the Edge SDK, which is an open source SDK for apps to be able to secure private keys for the user, much like they do in Edge with a simple username and password to encrypt backup keys. But it also lets the app transact on multiple different cryptocurrency blockchains, such as Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash, Ether, Tokens, EOS, Stellar and whatnot. And it's actually been used by a handful of great partners, such as Augur, the decentralized prediction market on Ethereum, Endorse, the professional network, 
Ember Fund, which is an awesome decentralized hedge fund, and even the top four Bitcoin ATM operators in the U.S. A big thanks to Paul and Edge for their support of the Let's Talk Bitcoin show. To learn more, visit edge.app or search for Edge, that's E-D-G-E, wallet on either the Android or iOS app stores. One of the important things to really point out here is, again, when we talk about this complexity of dealing with and managing cryptocurrency transactions for tax purposes, you know, you really have to look at it also. The question is, is this for an individual or is this for a business? So we've talked about some of that, but, you know, when we were moving up the scale from the most simple situation, right, to more complex, we were building up on it. When it comes to an individual, that's the most simple situation. So all they really have to do for compliance is calculate the gains and losses and report it on the related form. So 8949, you know, Schedule D, where every other basically sale of assets goes. So that's it. You're done with that. You don't have to account for any of the uh, business uh, transactions or anything like that, like expenses, like operational expenses. Now, if you, if you got paid in income, even as an individual that way, I mean, you may have to translate that, but that's easy to translate income into USD. But my point is, when going down the scale, the complexity gets magnified significantly when you go from needing to account for an individual's transactions to accounting on the business side. I mean, we're talking, you know, you get, I mean, it goes up like 4X, 5X, 10X because individuals don't have to produce a profit and loss statement. Individuals don't have to produce a balance sheet. That's all the stuff that a business has to do. And then you're dealing with disparate systems because, you know, right now the tax softwares don't really speak to the accounting systems. So then you've got, you know, information in different systems and you have to make all that stuff match up. Because an individual doesn't have a balance sheet, then it actually is quite easy to just calculate gains and you're on your way. So Mm -hmm. like I said, the complexity skyrockets when you're dealing with a business. Basically, the point of a balance sheet and a profit and loss is it's kind of like these financial statements, they're all tied together and they all have to balance. Similarly to the way that we know that blocks are connected by hashes, you have statement of cash flow, statement of equity, all these different things. They're all tied in together, actually. They're not independent statements. They're all linked together through double entry magic, if you will. So there's no room for mistakes. It has to balance. It has to turn out right. That's the point. So it sounds like you really need an in-house accountant who understands this if you're going to be dealing with cryptocurrency as a business at all. Yes, it can be very complicated. And I'd say the more time that goes on when you're trying to sort it out, you know, the more difficult it's going to be. And that's why a lot of businesses just don't touch cryptocurrencies, right? Or they, they try their best to minimize their burden. Well, you know, I think the accounting and the finance function is undervalued and is thought about as an afterthought rather than, you know, being, you know, realized. Like every, everybody thinks, oh my God, I get, like I've got to have legal, right? I got to get legal advice along the way. I don't want to step into quicksand and stuff like that. But that kind of same thinking doesn't really apply to accounting a lot of times. Like I've heard people say, oh, we got everything else covered. Now we're ready to handle accounting. It's like, um, that should have actually been in the beginning, <laughs> not the end. <laughs> right. Systems rather than recovery. So, Kirk, we have just a couple of more quick questions for you. I don't even know if some of these have answers yet, but I figure it's worth asking since they're relatively interesting topics. You know, the Lightning Network is looking like it's going to be big by the end of this year, perhaps next year. What differences, you know, like, have we even really started thinking about the tax consequences or treatment of transactions on the Lightning Network? Yeah, that is a great question. And if you just 
can carry the conversation from where we already talked about how complex, you know, accounting for these transactions is, that could actually add another layer of complexity to it. But I think at the same time, what's going to happen is that you're going to have advances and improvements, you know, in the tools that are able to capture that. So as the Lightning Network improves and becomes more usable, things like that, the tools that are going to be available to uh, deal with transactions are going to improve at the same time. Talking about the tools, so there's the Lightning Network, right, as kind of the broad network concept. And then there's all the individual wallet software that people use to interact with, most people at least, will use to interact with the Lightning Network. You know, given that most of that is at a very, very early stage of development or, you know, still even at the conceptual stage, what would you say to people who are developing wallet software for Lightning or for Bitcoin, for that matter, moving forward? What features are really important or this sort of tax compliance and ease of use for end users to go into the software rather than doing, you know, this kind of recovery approach that we're talking about here after the fact. I don't know if they're consulting with accounting experts or CPAs or what have you, but if it's not happening, I don't think it has happened very much. That's what should happen because I'm still seeing there's new wallets that are getting put out there for use on the market and they still are lacking in tools. It's like, wow, it's really great. Like it has a great user interface and some other cool stuff. But like, once again, you miss the boat on, you know, the accounting value. Some basic stuff that to me is, you know, in some cases, even like block explorers don't have a running balance. If you're trying to look at an address, might not have a running balance or there's just stuff like that. That's like basic accounting troubleshooting tools. So with Tokenly and with the the Let's Talk Bitcoin network before that, we actually created two wallets. And these were features that we talked about. I talked with you about them a number of times. And they never made it in because we didn't really, A, know what to do. (laughs) And B, because there were so many other things we were trying to see if would even work, that this was kind of a future concern. You know, are there any standards out there or do you think that there should be standards out there of here's a list of features that are very important for user compliance effectively with just their local tax laws that should be in every wallet? Does something like that exist or would you be interested in participating in an effort towards that? Yes, I, I'm not aware of anything existing like that. I've thought about a similar thing and, and that there was a need for that. Yeah, there should be something like that. You know, like for instance, there's the organization called Open Law. It might be through uh, somehow affiliated with uh, consensus, but and there may be other similar projects. But you know, just to mention that one because it's one I saw recently. Mm-hmm. But that's about creating. I'm going to say what appears to be layers in the stack for you know standards and how legal contracts are going to be dealt with. You know, with smart contracts in the future. So it's like, oh, well, I saw that. I was like, well, there needs to be something like that with accounting. And I'm sure there is right. some some stuff being done with that. I mean, you got the ABC Accounting Blockchain Coalition, things like that. But I don't know if it's to the level of of what I'm talking about, like with Open Law. Well, so I think that'd be really interesting. If you're interested in uh, you know in learning more about this or getting involved, just drop me an email, Adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. We'll see if there's a critical mass of interest here. Maybe start putting together a list of these things because it really would be great to just kind of at least have like just. If you don't know what to do, but you're building a wallet and you want to do it the right way, here are some things that you should make sure to at least think about including because they have real value for people who are going to be then using it to try and be compliant. So another uh, quick question. Uh, This one's really niche, actually. So when I make a Bitcoin transaction, two things happen. One, I create a transaction and I sign it. And then two, I broadcast it to the network. Which one of those triggers the taxable consequences? I think you would end up looking to the block explorer for the timestamp on the transaction. Right, because you could never broadcast it, right? Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying is like, if I sign a, well, I, I kind of, you know, thinking about this question, it kind of makes me think of how a check works. 
you sign a check, but never put it in the mail, right? Yeah, right. And so long as nobody else has it, so long as it never actually winds up at the bank, that transaction never happened. Is that kind of analogous here? If I write a transaction, you know, sign it with my Bitcoin keys, and then I basically just never transmit it anywhere, there's no taxable consequences for that, right? Right. That's the way I see it. Yeah, you could have a transaction that I guess you never broadcast, or you, you could also have it where you sign it and broadcast it to get stuck in the mempool for whatever reason. Maybe you put zero transaction fees on there. So yeah, it just never, it just floats around in limbo for whatever time. I think it's, it's actually got to execute whatever timestamp you would see on that. Speaking of the paper check, you got the mailbox rule, which says, okay, literally, I put a check in the envelope. I went to the mailbox on December the 31st and I dropped it in the mailbox and you know it was received on January the 6th and deposited on January the 9th and cleared on January the 17th. <laughs> but so for you as the party who put it in the mailbox, that entitles you to, uh, I believe, you know, that that's when you would be able to count that as an expense because it left your hand in good faith. So yeah, then that that is pretty analogous here. Basically, it's the transmission rule. Ultimately, it's going to be like, where does it end up either on a block explorer? Or where does it end up in the, in the wallet software in the transaction list? What's that? How's that transaction end up in the wallet with a timestamp? when does it actually make its way into the network? And so that would be the very specific timestamp of when it actually was included in a block. But for the analogy we're talking about here, I think it works both ways. So that that makes sense to me. So Kirk, on our list of potential topics to talk about, you have a topic here that deals with FATCA and FBAR compliance considerations. I got to tell you, I don't know what the hell we're talking about. <laughs> what are we talking about here? Right. This should be that breaking news <laughs> thing that they have. I forget what the show is. <laughs> Just got clarity on that. I'll share that in a second. But uh, so FBAR and uh, FATCA are kind of a similar compliance mechanisms, which basically has to do with disclosing interests that you have that are held in a foreign financial institution. So again, this is, you know, I think the part of the U.S.'s approach to want to make sure to get a, a handle on, you know, terrorism and taxes. Yeah, terrorism and taxes. And I mean, basically having also having a, t- a high uh, a tax structure that, you know, incentivizes people to look to go put their capital elsewhere where there's lower tax rates and stuff like that, right? So it's really, what it is, it's a disclosure scheme and it has nothing to do with reporting any any tax, like there's no tax due. But the interesting thing is when it comes to informational disclosures, that the penalties there are extreme, very, very significantly different than where you reported tax and if you like didn't pay the tax and you had penalties. Because it's informational, you can have very, very significant penalties, sometimes 100% penalties and stuff like that. So this is something you really got to pay attention to that can really, it's like, I use like to use the quicksand analogy. You can step into quicksand very quickly here if you're not paying attention to this. So the question in the crypto space has been, well, does my crypto held on an exchange that's a foreign exchange? In other words, not a US-based exchange like a Kraken or a Coinbase or what have you. Does that mean that that would be the equivalent of, of a foreign financial institution for purposes of complying with FBAR and, and, and FATCA? So FBAR has been around for a long time. FBAR is administered by FinCEN, still kind of through the Department of Treasury, whereas FATCA is, like I said, it's similar, but it's administered by the IRS and has its own form, 8938 and so forth. So again, it, it's similar because they're informational reporting. So like FBAR, for example, if the total value of your assets at any point in time, not call spaces, but value, total value of all your assets combined together held in foreign financial accounts exceeds $10,000 at any moment in time through the year. Even if it was one moment or one day, that's it. You've triggered the threshold and then you would have to report. The worst case scenario would be having $10,001 that you needed to report and you didn't report it. 
Because if you had to go hire an attorney to make sure that you work your way through, uh, you know, getting back into compliance, it could be cost you more than $10,000 just for the attorney's fees, let alone the penalty. Anyway, so with the AICPA Virtual Currency Task Force I mentioned, we had sent a one of the heads that's at the AICPA had had a contact and actually sent uh, an inquiry some time ago last year. Uh, we finally got a response, and this is from FinCEN saying that the virtual currency does not apply when it comes to FBAR reporting. So that was good news in that case. However, I think that you know the thing to do would be without that type of clarity, uh, the conservative approach would be certainly to have filed because that only makes sense because I think the downside's way too high. So basically, it's uh, you know FBAR regulations do not define virtual currency held in an offshore account as a type of reportable account. For that reason, virtual currency held uh, in an offshore account is not reportable on the FBAR. So that takes care of that one, which is good because that's the lower threshold of the two schemes that we're talking about. Because when you go to the FATCA Form 8938, that one is where you have to hit a $50,000 threshold. Or it's also got this weird thing. I think it's uh, 75000 on the last day of the year, specifically that day. Otherwise, if you hit the 50000 So that's you know, at least five times higher than FBAR there. It could be quite easy to hit the $10,000 threshold. That's the point. But 50000 it's a higher bar there. So the case is still out on that. But to me, it seems like, again, the downside for not reporting is very, very high. So the conservative approach could be certainly to, you know, disclose. So it seems like as time goes on, we're getting more clarity, but there are still a lot of unanswered questions and a lot of places where, frankly, anybody who's active in the space is going to wind up spending a decent amount of time or a decent amount of money or spends that time and money up front having systems in place to make it so they don't have to do it at the end of this. You know, if you look at other technologies, I mean, if there even are other technologies that are analogous to this, is there a period of time that we should expect this uncertainty to last and then it really kind of everything winds up being ironed out or are we in uncharted territory here still? I don't think the uncharted territory here in this industry is, uh, I don't think that it's uh, unique in any way. I think this, you'll find the same thing in whenever there's something new or new technology, especially when you're talking about like a taxation and compliance and stuff like that. But even with the law, right, you have the, there's a lag between the law and uh, catching up to technology. That, that's typical, internet and so forth. So I don't think there's anything unique in that area. It's just, it, yeah, so it's like, how do, you nav- how do you take what you know and apply it and sail the stormy seas and hope you get sailing to the port safely? So it, it's nothing new in that way. The most important thing is acting in good faith. Just take that rule. I like that rule. Yeah, do your best. An attorney once told me this interesting thing. He said, you know, you just take the New York Times test. I said, oh, what's that? They said, well, if you're willing to do, take whatever you've done and, you know, put it on the front page of the New York Times and you're good with it, then you, that can be your litmus test for, uh, you know, which action you're taking, whether you're trying to go left or right. But like another example is, uh, you know, like these regulations that come out, which are often more specific to, I'm talking about like IRS regulations, and they're more specific to particular situation, often given examples, because a lot of times the tax code is kind of like general and broad and the language doesn't give you specific examples to follow. So the regulations often lag the tax code and sometimes for many, many years. So for example, like the personal home gain income exclusion, you know, that's been around since I think 2000 or 2001, like basically if you sell your own personal residence and you lived in it two out of five years, 
you can exclude up to 250,000 like that. So mm-hmm. the regulations on that didn't come out until I think it was at least 10 years later before that came out. And that's, again, I don't see that that's unique in some cases. It, it takes that long because you got all kinds of obscure stuff. Like for instance, just to take that same example, you have to live in it two out of the five years that you owned it. But here's what you could have. You could have lived in it when you rented it and then bought it. And then you rented it out, even though you still owned it and stuff like that. So like, if you think about ex- like extreme scenarios, so things like that would still entitle you to do it. But like, you're, like this, is, so this is analogous to crypto. Like, it's like, okay, what if this happens? I'm looking for an answer. I don't have one, right? Yeah. So there wasn't an answer at that time for these situations with how you would comply, whether you could exclude that gain. And some of them didn't come out until 10 years later. But that just, that's what's typical with regulations. So you got to just march forth in good faith and do the best you can, get good advice. Okay, I have one last real question for now. <laughs> and then, then we're really done. I really appreciate your time today, Kirk. So we actually have a number of listeners who are CPAs, but who aren't really cryptocurrency you know, CPAs. They would like to be perhaps, but the uncertainty that surrounds it makes it actually kind of difficult to want to get into that field, I think. You know, you've written a book about this. You've been in the space for as long as really any CPA who I've known. Like, what do you think the path is at this point for a CPA who doesn't have all that context to try and grok what's going on here and help their clients with this type of world? Do you have any recommended resources or or what's the path in? Well, now that you mentioned it, we're actually going to working to to put forth a kind of a repository for resources for accountants and professionals. I think you know accounting and tax resources, but there's overlap with other professions. So that was actually the main intention with writing the book was to be a translator between the CPAs and you know and blockchain cryptocurrency. So it's kind of like having an epiphany, you know, recently where it's like coming back to the place where you first began and seeing it for the first time. So I just realized through research and people asking all different kinds of questions, it's like, wow, there's no like one place to go to around, you know, you already have this industry that's a niche, but then drill down even further. Like, where do you go find resources, accounting and tax related for CPAs and stuff? So I think that's what we're working on is to put that together. But, you know, there's a lot of continuing education courses that have now been developed that have come out in the past year. So like, for example as a CPA and other professions too, but you're required to have so many hours a year that you got to get. So for CPAs, it's 40 hours a year. So, which is good because I like to learn myself so that this way somebody is required to learn and they can go out there and take a course and learn this stuff. There's a course with the AI CPA that's a two-day course. I help them write that. And there's a lot of different ones I'm hearing about that are coming out. So that's an easy one to do because you're already that's something you already have to do. And you get to choose what it is you want to learn. So why not choose a cryptocurrency course and and go that way? And I think it's something that in my mind, it's like I see crypto and blockchain is that people want to get into it, especially with firms who want to do this and have it as a new practice area. I think it's something you got to learn little by little every day. You can't cram for this stuff in my mind. You know, it's like Stephen Covey's The Law of the Farm. You can't cram the law of the farm, which means that you have to plow the field and you have to plant the seeds and you have to sow the crops and you have to water the crops and you have, like you can't cram that it always has to be done in the right order and it always has to be done you know with the right process that's how i see this little by you have to absorb it over time you just can't cram for it there's so many nuances and things that you pick up just by being in the space over a long period of time that if you want to get into it the best thing is just to start thanks for listening to this episode of let's talk bitcoin 
Today's show is sponsored by Edge.app, with content for today's show provided by Kirk Phillips, Adam B. Levine, and Stephanie Murphy. This episode was edited by Dave and Adam B. Levine, with music by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. Any questions or comments? Email Adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. See you next time.